From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. In a year unlike anything we have experienced before, scientists and doctors have become essential heroes more than ever. As COVID-19 cut across 2020, clinical researchers around the world began committing their life's work to finding a vaccine. Now, with the search for a vaccine underway, Dr. Katie Stevenson talks with us about the unique experience of being at the front lines of infectious disease research and what she has seen and learned this year. Dr. Katie Stevenson is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, an infectious disease physician, and director of the clinical trials unit at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Stevenson, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're the director of the clinical trials unit at the Center of Virology and Vaccine Research at Beth Israel. Can you tell us about what the clinical trials unit does? Sure. So we are embedded within um, CVVR, which is um, a translational research center. So our group, our center has about uh, 10 different principal investigators, um, most of which are actually uh, PhDs. Um, so they have large laboratories in our center. Um, we do quite a bit of um, wet lab research, meaning at the bench, and then um, a number of research also, researchers also do animal research. Um, but within the group, we started about 2016 a clinical trial unit because we realized that we were developing a lot of interesting novel interventions um, for the treatment and prevention of infectious diseases that we were then um, handing off to other groups to test um, in clinical trials. And for me personally, I uh, have never loved animal research. I much prefer to do work with um, patients. So we started this unit in order to do our own phase one clinical trial. So phase one is the first step when you're translating um, a discovery in the lab to humans. Um, so we started our unit here and we work within the context of the hospital. So our research division is um, just, you can walk indoors through a couple bridges and get to the hospital, which is where our clinic is located. You did your postdoctoral work at Beth Israel and your mentor was uh, Dan Baruch. Could you tell mm -hmm. us about your postdoc work and how that prepared you for what you're doing now? Sure. So I'm a clinician initially, so I'm, you know, I'm an MD and I did um, my internal medicine training at Columbia. And then I came up here to Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital to do my infectious diseases specialty training, which is clinical training. Um, but the program here is, uh, has a, a research component to it. So you can do an additional three to four years uh, of training to do a postdoctoral research piece to it. So during my clinical training, um, I was very interested in HIV vaccine research, which has been a longstanding interest of mine. And that is part of the reason why I came to Boston for this training, because there were many people here who do vaccine research. Um, including Dr. Dan Baruch. So um, Dan Baruch was initially actually one of my clinical um, attendings on the wards. 
Um, but through talking to him and realizing that we had some aligned interests, I uh, came over to do my postdoctoral research years at his group at Beth Israel Deaconess. Um, and when I started there, I mean, you know, I, I have continued to see patients, you know, to, to today. I'm still an active physician. Um, but what we decided and what I felt like I needed to do was to get a better handle on the basic science of vaccinology. I wanted to always go forward and do translational work and, and sort of product development, but I just really felt like I needed to understand the mechanisms of how vaccines work, better understand the immune system. So my postdoctoral years, I did bench work, all bench work, um, studying immune responses to vaccines and infection in animal models. Tell me a little bit more about maybe how that evolved into how you're approaching your research now. I started as a postdoc working on analyzing the immune responses to these, this concept of a mosaic uh, HIV vaccine, which is a genetic recombination of multiple different <clears throat> sequences. And uh, as I was working on that vaccine, looking at immune responses in um, rhesus macaques who had been vaccinated, it looked really good in these animal models. And as a result, it got picked up by a industry partner, which at the time was called um, Janssen, which was ultimately purchased by Johnson & Johnson. And so Janssen was a, uh, a smaller group that worked with us in the beginning. They uh, were encouraged enough by the animal data in this vaccine to actually take it into human studies. And this was also funded by the NIH. The NIH had a very big grant that Dan had um, for translating these kind of bench concepts into human studies. So this is a big theme for me is, and learning from constantly is how do you make that leap? Because it's quite hard in research to do that and you need a lot of funding. Mm. Um, and, and Dan has had, had that funding. So that began going into phase one studies in people. And that's when I said, okay, well, I am a clinician. I work with patients. Um, I understand the immunology really well of this vaccine. I would really like to run my own study um, in humans, in patients to look at their immune responses. So I got a, um, what they call a K23 grant, which is an NIH um, career uh, development grant. It's a five-year grant. Uh, to look at immune responses in humans um, following vaccination. And, that, and then working with this group, we um, initiated our first clinical trial, which was in 2016. And to do that, we had to hire all new staff. You know, this is not a typical operation for a lab. So we had to hire nurses, for example. It's very different. Um, and clinical research assistants and work with a clinic and kind of build up our infrastructure for that. So it's a totally different set of skills mm. than the lab. Um, but um, surprisingly, it went rather smoothly. But what was interesting in terms of how this all relates to the current pandemic is that we started that vaccine study and then simultaneous with starting our very first trial, the Zika outbreak occurred. And, mm -hmm. and that was that back was in 2016? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at the same exact time, and Dr. Baruch's group was uh, working with a number of collaborators at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research because of uh, they also do HIV work. And it became clear that this epidemic was moving very, very quickly, um, and that a vaccine was going to be really critical, um, which we still believe. So 
uh, we got involved very early on in testing these Zika vaccine constructs in, in the animal model. So kind of exactly what we'd been doing for HIV. Um, but now we had something different, a different tool, which was we had a phase one clinical trial unit. And um, so in about February of 2016, that's when really vaccine work started in earnest for Zika. And by October, we started our first phase one clinical trial for a Zika vaccine, which if you think about it, is actually similar timelines to COVID-19, hmm. except we're faster. So that at that <laughs> time, that was probably the fastest that we could think of that anyone's really done that. Um, and at that time, that seemed, un it was unprecedented and it was incredibly fast. Um, yet here we are in August with COVID-19 and, and doing our phase one studies. That created a system for us that was very, very important when COVID-19 hit. So that was a very foundational moment. And it was a very crazy time for us because, of course, it was my second vaccine study ever. And it was starting simultaneous with our first. We had a completely new staff, completely new group of people. But it was very exciting as well. Mm, yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and your group is working on a vaccine trial for COVID-19. I want you to take us back a little bit to earlier this year, because I think for most people in this country, at least COVID started in March, kind of early March, things mm -hmm. started shutting down. Tell us about the first meeting you had at the hospital uh, mm -hmm. about COVID. So because I'm super interested in emerging infectious diseases, you know, Zika and Ebola and, and all of those. So I, I follow on Twitter, basically everyone, every scientist out there that's kind of in that space. Um, and there are a lot of groups like Flu Tracker and some other websites and groups that report almost every day they report on various little outbreaks that occur throughout the world and kind of put them on the radar for everyone else. And that always bubbles along. But this one in Wuhan seemed to pop up and each day there was kind of a new update. So that caught my attention as well as other, other virology, you know, people in this space. So I was following that along and um, we had our lab meeting in Dan Baruch's group, essentially January 10th, because I was looking back at my calendar. So January 10th, we had our lab meeting um, and it was at the front of the lab meeting. I always sit up in the front because I give the updates about the clinical trials. And it was Jin Yun, who's one of our post, uh, actually staff scientists, Dan and myself. And we were sitting there. And Jin Yun had actually come back from Wuhan like a month before. Hmm. And um, Dan and, was, and I were talking, you know, have you basically like, have you seen, you know, did you hear about this outbreak? And talking about it. And we're like, we need to start working on a vaccine for this thing because it looks like it's going to be bad. And um, we started talking about like, well, Jin Yun, do you have any friends back in Wuhan, right? Like, how can we get the data? How can we get the virus? Like, how can we get the information? So we were talking about that. And then we had our lab retreat that day um, where we were, you know, doing our like presentations about our work. And then I was getting ready to go on vacation and I was back on Twitter and it was in the evening. And I remember I was going through it and I saw that the scientists in China had, had posted the sequence to what became SARS-CoV-2 online. And that was really a, like a game changer, um, probably one of the biggest milestones in this entire epidemic. Now, there's a lot to be unpacked about how transparent or not transparent China was during this period of time. 
But these particular scientists, whether they, they were doing this on their own or not, I don't know. But the fact that they publicly posted this sequence for the entire world to see and use was an incredible moment of scientific transparency. So when they posted that, I sent the link to Dan. I said, look, we don't have to send Jinyan to Wuhan. They, they, they actually posted it. And, and that night is when, you know, Dan sent an email to the group and said, okay, let's convene. Um, we have to get started. And I think by the next week, um, Dan's group, you know, had started working on about five or six different concepts. So DNA-based vaccines um, had already sent in the orders to the companies to um, build peptides based on that sequence. So all of that was in motion. And, and that wasn't just Dan's group. So if you go back and look on Twitter, because that's where all of science is talking, the diagnostic tests started then. So it's interesting to look back at that now and, and see, I thought that the diagnostic tests and lab testing was going to be easy, the easy part of this, because they already had PCR-based tests, you know, people were working on them in their lab by the next week, and the World Health Organization had them ready. So that's something, you know, that's not my space exactly, diagnostic testing, but I would have thought that that problem would have been solved immediately. So it's kind of amazing that we're still struggling with that. So timeline-wise, um, you know, the vaccine work really started in earnest in January. So then all of February, we were working on vaccines here. Now I'm a, doing the clinical trials, right? So I'm, I'm in the background during this mm -hmm. period of time, um, listening in and thinking about which of these vaccines constructs are most likely to go into phase one testing and how can we be ready for it. And this, what we very early on, you know, what everyone in our group felt, you know, and Dan Baruch and others, of course, leading this charge was the most likely candidate for us to work on would be based on the adenovirus 26 vector. Um, and the reason for that is because we had a long-standing relationship, years working with industry on translating this concept in, in, into phase one human studies. So we had already done it with HIV. And in fact, we'd done it with Zika as well. And we were working on, um, at the time, and it's now you know, under review, our AD26 Zika vaccine, first in human trials. Yeah, so for people who don't know, the adenovirus, you talked about it earlier, but it's sort of like you, you send a, you, the vaccine is encapsulated in a virus or? Uh, maybe it's, I don't understand it that well. Could you explain it? Uh, yeah. Um, so viruses work, all viruses work by um, binding to some sort of receptor that's on the surface of a cell, our own cell, um, different types of cells. And then it binds to that receptor and is brought into the cell. And once the virus is brought into the cell, it unravels within the cell and uses our own host machinery within the cell to make more copies of itself. And it does that by various enzymes within the cell, translate the genetic sequence of that virus and turns it into various proteins. Vaccines can use various different ways to introduce the body to these proteins so that the body can learn about them. You can either just make the proteins in a factory and inject them, and that's a very common way to do it. Another way that you can do it is to use a different virus to transport the sequence for those proteins into the cell. So what you can do is take something like adenovirus um, 26, which is a serotype of adenovirus, 
Um, and adenoviruses are really good for this because they're kind of big. Pro you can take out chunks and replace it with other sequences, and it's, it's a hardy little virus. It doesn't die when you do that. So you can take adenovirus. In our case, we uh, make it replication incompetent. So we take out enzymes in there that would be required to make adeno the adenovirus um, replicate. And instead, we swap in, um, in this case, the sequence for the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. So ad 26 it binds to the cell. It is brought up, the human cell, it's brought up into the cell. The cell starts making the proteins. Um, and it makes, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of adenovirus proteins, which can never, are never reassembled into a real virus because it doesn't have all of the genes for it. And along the way, it just goes, just like an automatic pilot, it makes the spike protein for SARS-CoV-2 because we kind of snuck it in there. And it makes this, this spike protein, it's only one protein, so you can't make the whole SARS-CoV-2 virus. And then that protein um, is, to, is secreted from the cell or kind of posted up on the surface of the cell. And that's how the immune system sees it. And for whatever reason, this often creates a nicer immune response, or we think it does. It sees the protein in a more natural way um, than if you just injected it um, into the bloodstream. It sees it as the body would see it if it was infected with SARS-CoV-2. Hmm. So you're involved in a clinical trial of this vaccine now based on this adenovirus 26 vector. Mm -hmm. As you were starting to look into the vaccine, starting to develop the vaccine, you're also managing clinical trials for other things related to COVID-19. Um, mm -hmm. And um, one of them was remdesivir, which is an antiviral treatment that mm -hmm. has shown some promise. So maybe you could just quickly tell us about that clinical research and mm -hmm. sort of what were some of the challenges of, of doing that? Yeah, so, you know, my, my day job, I guess you would say, had always been working on these vaccines like we've just been talking about um, in a kind of calm, methodical manner. <laughs> um, and in the background, that has been occurring, so, you know, the AD26-based vaccine was going through this whole process of development um, through March and April. And I, there was nothing much for, for me to do for that at that point because it wasn't ready for clinical testing. Um, but, you know, right March 3rd, I think, is when I look back on my calendar, I went on service in the hospital and that's where we saw the very first cases. Um, and I'm an infectious diseases doctor, so, you know, we had to see those cases. And um, that was when things really broke wide open. And we started to see a lot of cases. And some of the cases we saw within a week or week, we had cases in the ICU. So one way to do research um, is to do uh, something called compassionate use research, which means that you have a patient, an individual patient, um, and you can request to give them an experimental drug, um, not in the context of a trial, but one-on-one. -on -one. And you can request it from the company that makes that drug and from the FDA, and you can get emergency use approval to do that. So we had a patient in the ICU, and we requested to do that for remdesivir. So that was my first and our hospital's first experience using remdesivir. So we requested this um, because uh, 
for myself working at the Center for Virology and Vaccine Research and being in the thick of this, you know, we, I knew already about remdesivir. So remdesivir was a drug that was developed for Ebola and it was actually an all-purpose antiviral and had been tested for Ebola. And it was already well known among scientists at that time that it was potentially the most, uh, we had the most optimism about it. So that was the natural choice to ask for, um, for compassionate use. So that was our first experience actually using it. Um, and then Shortly thereafter, probably a week, I was able to connect with Gilead to actually do the formal trial of remdesivir at the study. I really wanted to get our hospital involved in the NIH-funded study, but they had already picked sites for that. So it's, it's a bit of a scramble, is what I've learned in this experience, um, is that you just kind of have to like hit the phones and reach out to as many people as you can to try to get your hospital to be a site. So we were super fortunate and I'm very happy that we were able to be a site for those studies, um, which started right away. I mean, I think they started basically in mid-March, we started those studies. You were able to be a site for the, for the remdesivir trials, even though originally you hadn't been because mm-hmm. it had already been chosen? Well, there's different uh, mechanisms by which people okay. were testing it. So the NIH had started a placebo-controlled trial um, which ultimately became the basis for the, the data that showed that it actually had a benefit. Um, that study had a placebo arm to it. And parallel with that, the company also ran their own studies um, looking at different questions, five days versus 10 days, et cetera. So those were the studies that we were able to get in on. Um, and that was really great for us because for a while that was kind of the only way that we could get patients treated. The compassionate use is one by one. It's really mm. time consuming, labor intensive, and not scalable. We did continue to do compassionate use through the remdesivir trials for pregnant women because they were excluded from the study um, so or ineligible for the study. So we actually did enroll um, pregnant women for compassionate use, and that was... Um, also a really interesting experience for me. But anyway, so that's, we did um, our little clinical trial team, which I mentioned to you was just this kind of tiny team that we created in 2016, Mm. um, only ever did outpatient work. Um, Suddenly, we were doing an inpatient study, very, very different situation. Um, Incredibly sick patients, patients in the ICU, patients that you couldn't talk, talk to, um, patients with devastated family members trying to make decisions on the fly. Uh, we had to do everything at that point remotely, um, doing informed consents remotely, working with the house staff and the nursing staff to get the drug to patients, um, getting IRB approval turnarounds you know, within 24 hours, you know, all of that stuff, um, we had to create a system, you know, overnight for this entire thing. And it, it was it, it actually very inspirational, I should say, um, to see my team adjust to that, you know, nurses who hadn't been doing that kind of work for years, or research assistants straight out of college that had never interacted with an incredibly sick group of people like that before. And of course, we had many patients die during that period of time, which is not something we'd experienced before in any of our studies. 
they didn't, you know, they died from COVID-19. Um, young people die, you know, and to have to work with um, a research group that's typically kind of very academic, you know, we just mm -hmm. do immunology seminars and do our experiments and to suddenly have to work with families at that level and kind of go through our own grief was um, a very, it was very different um, experience. And that lasted until about the end of May. Wow. So two months of, of really hard, you know, experiences that you've never gone through before. And how did your group deal with the, the grief and just the, the magnitude of everything? It was hard. We, we didn't really talk about it for a while because we were just running at full speed. Um, and the research nurses in my group, you know, had to kind of bring it to my attention. I mean, I'm a physician, right? So I've trained in ICUs before I've had, I've gone through some of this before. Um, and so they had to kind of sit me down and, or, you know, virtually sit me down and <laughs> remind me that, um, the rest of our team had not really been through anything like this before, especially the younger research assistants, and they needed time off, and that the research nurses themselves really needed. I mean, we've been working every single day. Um, you know, when there's a pregnant woman who is in the ICU, um, and they page you at 3 a.m. in the morning to start the application for compassionate use, like, you don't, you don't ever say, like, you know, call me in the morning, you know, right. you, you don't say, well, I'm, I'm a I, I only work like nine to five. You don't do that. You assemble like this whole team and the pharmacist comes in and delivers, you know, hand delivers the drug to the team at 5 a.m. or whatever. So after probably a month of that kind of thing, um, we had to stop doing it like that for our own mental health. I mean, we would do it for that situation, but we would just had to slow down. So like we would take Sunday and say, okay, the team is going to be off on Sunday. Like I'll hold the pager and if there's an emergency, I'll handle it. But, you know, or we would say, okay, I would check with people. Like, did you take a walk today? Like, did you leave your house today? You know? Yeah. Um, so it took, it took some time. And I think we're actually, to be honest, we're still recovering from that. Um, going into the vaccine studies, you know, we're just really checking all the time. Like, are we getting swept up again? Are we gonna, we can't do that again. So we've spent a lot of time talking to each other about it. And I'm very thankful that I have a really, I have a team that communicates with me and is very honest with me when things are getting totally insane. You talked about the, just sort of that running full speed. And I wonder if that was, was it similar to what you felt in 2016 with Zika or it was just way more? Uh, it was completely different. I, you know, Zika, we were running nonstop, but like I remember for the Zika vaccine trial, I submitted our application to the FDA from a tent. I was camping with my kids and <laughs> like I couldn't get Wi-Fi, and I had to go find it so I could like press, you know, submit. Um, so, you know, I'm work it's I'm working a lot, but I'm still in a tent with my kids having fun. Right. So it's a different thing than this. This was, you know, 
this was like putting on full PPE, going into the hospital ward. You know, it's just very different. So this was a totally different experience. And I hope never to be repeated in my lifetime. Hmm. So that brings us up to now. And you're currently involved in the vaccine trial that's being funded through this federal program, Operation Warp Speed. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that and um, and how this sort of what stage you're at with the vaccine trial. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, we had um, knew pretty early on that the Ad26 based platform was going to have the most potential. Um, because the reason why is because we had an industry partner that had um, proven manufacturing ability and ability to scale up to global distribution. So um, this particular vaccine moved very quickly, kind of out of our hands very quickly um, into a much bigger effort, as you mentioned, sort of part of the whole Operation Warp Speed. Um, which is a national vaccine effort that involves actually multiple different prevention, uh, not just vaccines, but also monoclonal antibodies and other forms of prevention, um, where they have a whole research effort, and that's what we're involved in. But there's a sort of the other side of this Operation Warp Speed is the manufacturing funding, so the funding for all the manufacturing. So we a lot of this is kind of on a train that has left the station that we sometimes have to, for me anyway, look at it from afar, like, wow, mm. look where that's going. <laughs> um, and just kind of trying to hold on to it almost. Um, I want to, you know, I want to stay with this to the end. So, uh, but we were fortunate enough because of our relationship to be able to do a small study in our group um, that's very scientifically focused with 25 individuals. And it's a study where we can collect a lot of really cool and different samples that will help us answer some interesting scientific questions um, that will ultimately also inform the development of this vaccine. So for example, we can, um, one of the studies we did with Zika that was really cool is, and we're gonna do it again for this one is to isolate antibodies that are generated by our patients and see if those antibodies actually protect animals from infection in different animal models. And so that's a kind of uh, ex vivo way of um, looking at the protective uh, ability of these antibodies. So that's not something you can do in like a 700 person study, but we can do it in our little study. And it's actually because of some of the infrastructure that we built where we have this phase one clinic that's in a lab. So we can get those samples and walk them down you know, we literally walk them down and I hand them off, you know, to Jin Young again, yeah. you know, and the rest of the team and say, you know, analyze this. And then we get the data back like three days later. Um, so that's what we're doing. And I have to say, after being, we had about a month where we were really remote, like remdesivir was done, the cases dropped off, our team were all remote, just doing like data cleaning and query resolving and all that for research. And when the vaccine study finally opened, it opened like with a burst, like we opened and then we had two days to recruit everybody and we had 10 days to vaccinate everybody, all 25. But when everybody in my team came back together and we're physically together again on the floor, it was amazing. It was just so uplifting. Like we were working on a project that was not like a salvage therapy for patients who were incredibly sick, but instead like a super optimistic, positive project that we hoped was gonna actually get us out of this mess. And all of the 
volunteers that wanted to be in the study were all like that too. Like they were super pumped. Everybody was, there's just like a buzz in the air, all of this stuff. Just everyone was so happy to work on, and it's still the case. We're just all so happy to be working on something positive and optimistic. And, you know, it's, it's really actually kind of very therapeutic for us right now. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, so many people are, you know, so tired of, of this and um, people who've lost loved ones and people who've be, who've been very sick and had really bad outcomes and, and for you to be able to, to come into a lab and like do work on the vaccine that could possibly end this, that must be amazing. Yeah, it is. It's really amazing. <laughs> it makes it easier. <laughs> like it definitely makes it easier. I mean, I think I had mentioned to you previously, you know, I have kids at home and they're really bored this summer. They have nothing to do and camps are all closed and they're just kind of sitting around playing Fortnite for like nine hours in a row. And it helps, to, you know, to, to come home and say, um, well, I'm working on something, you know, they know all about what I'm working on and they're excited about it. And I sometimes hear them talking to their little friends, like uh, texting with them or whatever and mentioning, you know, that I'm working on a vaccine and I can feel it that they're, they're proud of it and they're, they're proud to be a part of it. Um, and everyone who talks to us, their friends or family, they're always, they always ask about it. How's it going? Like, we really need you. Like, thank you for doing this. And I think it just really helps my kids. I hope, I don't know. I'll ask them when I'm older, but I, I, when they're older, but I feel like it, maybe it helps a little bit to feel like they're involved and they're not, that we're not helpless in this pandemic. Dr. Stevenson, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.